Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm Jenny Scholick, the Associate Director of Audience Development here at San Francisco Ballet, and I am your host this week and every week for To The Point, the podcast that tells you all about San Francisco Ballet's season and performances. This time, we are talking about Program 2, Classical Revision. You have to imagine the parenthetical there, so it's re Vision. So revision, classical revision, or classical vision. This program is a tasting flight of contemporary ballet. From Stanton Welch's updated classicism, hence the classical revision, to Mark Morris's quirky cool with a rotating group of director's choice ballets in between. All the ballets on this evening highlight different elements of the company's style and really serve as showpieces for the company's dancers. Today we're going to talk a little bit about that what I mean by the company's style, and how these three choreographers work within it, as well, of course, about the, converse, about the choreographers themselves, these ballets, and what to look for. Ready for that? All right, then let's get to the point. San Francisco Ballet is a company known for its versatility, performing ballets in a variety of styles. Whereas some companies devote a lot of time and training to one type of ballet, even if they perform multiple kinds, our company's style is a kind of anti-style, an ability to shift quickly from one way of performing to another, with a characteristic cleanliness and speed. In the course of classical revision, you'll see this ability to transform, as the program features just about every style of ballet imaginable. But you'll also see a kind of consistency an approach to music and physicality that stays true across the different ballets. The evening opens with the most recent ballet on the program, Bespoke, choreographed by Stanton Welch in 2018 for the Unbound Festival. Stanton has a long-standing relationship with San Francisco Ballet. He first came here as a student and then returned as part of the Australian Ballet's delegation to United We Dance Festival in 1995, where his work was first seen in the United States. After his time as a dancer, he turned full-time to choreography and artistic leadership, and he's now the artistic director of Houston Ballet. He's made several ballets for San Francisco Ballet over the years and has gotten to know our dancers really well. In this case, he was really thinking about them as individuals, paying attention to how they move in class and what kinds of feelings and attributes they bring to their movement. I'll let him elaborate a bit. So, you know, here are some extraordinary technical classical dancers, and we train every day in these classes to be this level of perfection. So I wanted to make a work that reflected that in some way. And the idea was that, that it was your relationship with ballet. So... I've been connected to Houston, uh, San Francisco Ballet since 1988, and it's 30 years ago. And I've watched many of my friends dance and have this rich, full dance career and stop dancing and then teach dance and then choreograph or direct. It, it was sort of uh, ballet keeps moving and you get this short little relationship with ballet and then it leaves you and it, it keeps going and you're, you're left and you can be angry or bitter or you can be in love. Uh, it, it's, it's a strange feeling and it gives me goosebumps when I think about it because of my own reactions to that. So that's what the ballet was about. The pas de deux and the end was, was your conversation with your love for ballet, for classical ballet. And sometimes that's about doing hard steps and being perfect and fast and it feels good to move like that. And, and sometimes it's sad, and no matter what you do, it leaves you. There are dancers whose careers are finished from a freak accident. There are dancers who dance 
until they're 50. It's, it's random. It, it, it's, uh, and that's what I wanted to capture. This ballet is really an example of neoclassicism in ballet, a style popularized by George Balanchine in the middle of the 20th century, and one of the many styles of ballet performed by San Francisco Ballet. Neoclassical ballets look a lot like classical ballets. They're usually performed in point shoes, and the shapes the dancers make are fundamentally classical, or fundamentally um, based on the basic positions of ballet. But there's something new about them too, hence the neo. Sometimes it's in the costumes, as in bespoke, where the dancers are in leotards rather than tutus. Sometimes it's in the choreography, which incorporates just enough modern dance or jazz to seem not completely purely classical. And sometimes it's in the theme or the plot, or rather, in the lack thereof, as most neoclassical ballets are fundamentally abstract, about music and movement, but not about a story. But just because a neoclassical ballet may lack a story, that doesn't mean it lacks in meaning. Rather, these ballets can be deeply meaningful in much the way that abstract art is deeply meaningful and moving. Bespoke, in particular, is about the brevity of a dancer's career and the way a dancer mourns the loss of this art form to which they've devoted so much time and devotion. This is expressed in the ballet through one key motif, the way the dancer's arms move like the hands of a clock to suggest the passage of time. And in the ballet's final moments, Stanton seems to reference the Martha Graham quotation that, quote, a dancer dies twice, once when they stop dancing, and it's this first death is the more painful. He seems to come back to this idea about the dancer dying twice as the dancers one by one lay themselves down to rest at the end of the ballet. But classical revision doesn't only show the company's neoclassical capacity, but also their classical, contemporary, and dramatic abilities. In the middle slot of this program is what we're calling Director's Choice, a rotating set of three ballets that feature our dancers really showing off what they each individually do best. Depending on the night of the week, you might see our dancers in sparkles and tiaras, showing off their classical technique in Helgi Thomason's Soiree Musicales or Victor Gsovsky's Grand Pas Classique. Or they might be in leotards and bare legs in Christopher Wielden's After the Rain Potida, Miles Thatcher's brand new 549, or David Dawson's Swan Lake Potida, which is not the classical Petipa version, but his own contemporary take on that music. Each of these ballets is an example of contemporary ballet. Or the dancers might be in a more of a dance theater mode, as in um, Val Paroli's recent world premiere Foreshadow, or Danielle Rose for Pixie. Or they might be right back into neoclassicism in a virtuosic display like Thomason's Concerto Grosso. In any given night, you'll see three, so you'll get an, a, a wide array. These short gala-style pieces, ballet terminology for a series of short ballets or excerpts that showcase individual dancers, provide a real sense of the range of the company's artists. Depending on the night you come, you'll see a selection of three of these works. I think I already said that, but it bears repeating. And that means if you like surprises, just show up. See what's in store. It'll change every night if you come more than once. And if you like to plan ahead, details about which ballets you'll see which night are available now on the San Francisco Ballet website. And, as I said, no harm in coming more than once so that you can catch all of these works. The final piece on the evening, or afternoon if you're a matinee goer, shifts gears entirely. The overture alone will let you know that you're in for something really different with Mark Morris's 1989 Sandpaper Ballet. And no, if you don't already know or you haven't already seen it, I'm not going to spoil the joke. The point of this podcast, pardon the pun, is to give you a sense of what to look for, not to ruin any surprises. Morris is known for being something of a marvelously musical iconoclast. 
working mainly in the modern dance world, but frequently commissioned by ballet companies, and especially by San Francisco Ballet. He's made more works for us than for any other ballet company in the world, so the question might be, why? Well, a big part of it is the orchestra. San Francisco Ballet's orchestra is known for being particularly excellent, and as Morris says in his recent memoir titled Out Loud, he did finally come around to trusting them with the music he gave them to perform. He calls Sandpaper Ballet his, and this is a quote, apology and joke for that original misapprehension he had about the orchestra, because the music by Leroy Anderson is hardly a masterpiece of the classical repertory, but rather a collection of novelty numbers written as encores for the Boston Pops. Um, And we will have um, a special edition podcast in this feed about the music itself, so stay tuned for that. This ballet features 11 Anderson songs, including the typewriter, featuring none other than a typewriter, played by the orchestra's percussionist, Fiddle Faddle, and the syncopated clock. And the costumes are equally fun, Isaac Mizrahi unitards in a brilliant green. Across the dancers' chests are painted a, a blue sky with white clouds, and if the dancers line up in height order, the horizon line runs straight across, meaning that on a short dancer, the blue segment of the costume is only going to come to her shoulders, while on a tall one, it may go all the way down to his waist. Um, They also wear green gloves and, for the women, green point shoes. I was actually recently listening to an old uh, Dance and Steph podcast, which is a podcast well worth a listen, and the hosts of that show were interviewing um, Isaac Mizrahi about his new memoir. And he said that the gloves were a bit of a battle. Dancers don't necessarily like wearing things on their hands, especially if they have to, you know, do partnering and things. But in the end, he won that, and he was right. Those gloves really helped make the costume. We've been talking a lot about style today, so it's worth returning to that idea for a minute. This ballet rather defies categorization, but that's really how it shows off our dancers' versatility. They need to be cle- they need to be clever without being cheesy, witty without mugging for the audience, and casual without being sloppy. Morris's choreography here has a jazzy edge to it at moments, but it also has a kind of softness through the wrists and the shoulders, a way in which they seem to trail a bit behind the body. And the legs and feet? As often hyper, hyper classical as they are turned in and contemporary. The ballet changes mode and mood as frequently as it changes music. And it is really the musicality of this ballet that's a big part of what makes it so charming to watch. Morris is intensely musical. He even has begun to conduct a bit when his company performs. And this ballet is the epitome of the George Balanchine dictum, hear the music and see the dance. Morris uses the dancers to highlight certain details of the music, moments of syncopation, specific instruments, so that watching the dance really makes you take this sometimes silly-seeming music seriously. It makes you literally see its complexity. And also, I'll uh, add that there are a few uh, George Balanchine quotations embedded within the ballet. So see if, if anyone who's been seeing a lot of balancing work can pick out some of those moments. But for all its complexity, there's a satisfying simplicity to this ballet's organization. If you watch any ballet enough times, you'll often start to notice some kind of pattern, or at least that's something I, I tell people all the time in this podcast. Maybe it's a step that comes back over and over again, or a gesture that repeats like the clock arm gesture in Bespoke, which I talked about a few minutes ago. But the main pattern in Sandpaper Ballet doesn't need multiple viewings to notice. It's a grid that starts and ends many sections of the piece. 
Several times throughout, the 25 dancers, and yes, it's a 25-member cast, assemble themselves into a 5x5 grid. This repeated motif signals both a kind of choreographic ending and a new beginning, almost like shaking an etch-a-sketch to start a new design. But it's not quite the same every time. Each time the grid is formed, the dancers are in a different location, and they even keep cheat sheets sometimes backstage or in the studio to make sure they know where they're going. These kinds of repeated ideas often suggest something important about the dance, and the grid is no different. As the dancers scramble and then unscramble themselves, they show how they're part of a group, and yet still individuals. Several soloists pop out of the crowd in the course of the ballet for solos and pas de deux, but then they blend back in, creating a kind of seamless whole. And that is classical revision, from the classical to the very much revised. Thanks for tuning in to this season of To The Point, and meet me right back here for previews of the rest of the season's performances, as well as that special bonus episode I mentioned. If you haven't checked out our other podcasts, including recordings of our popular Meet the Artist interviews and points of view lectures, go do that. You can find them on our website or at any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store. Hit subscribe and you'll get our episodes downloaded as soon as they're posted. In addition, please do leave us a rating and review in the Apple Store and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We are at SF Ballet. We'd love to hear from you and your ratings and reviews help us to reach new and bigger audiences. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you at the Opera House.